In the book of Ephesians, I always feel like I'm ripping somebody off, like I'm jipping you by not reading the whole book. Every time we dig into Ephesians and I tell you, we're just going to read this section, I always feel like, man, we're, we're getting cheated because this is so rich and it all flows together. And that's why it's important you read your Bibles at home. It's important that you go and, and when we read something here, as much as we try to put it in context, we have a limited amount of time. It's important that you take your Bible home and you look at what came before and what came after what we read, that you understand it. If you say, I don't understand, I, I mean, I just, I hate reading, I, whatever. If that's you, you just say this, Lord, open my eyes. I'm asking your Holy Spirit to be my teacher. The Bible says the anointing that abides within you is able to teach you all things. You have a teacher. You have the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave you his spirit so that you would have a teacher at all times. Thank God we've got teachers in the church. I might be a teacher, but I'm not the teacher. I might be your pastor. I might be the pastor of this church, but I'm not the senior pastor. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ himself. And there is only one man standing between you and God, and that's Jesus. And he's not standing between you and God. Now, he is God, but he's standing between you and the Father, not as an obstacle, but as a mediator, as somebody that makes you righteous and able to talk to God. So you can open your Bible, and you could say, Lord, I don't get this. Lord, the last book I read was See Dick Run, See Dick Run Fast. And I just, mm. yeah, spot two. They go together. They play. That's the last book I read. I don't get it. I don't like it. Well, first of all, you know, there's audio Bibles. You can get a Bible. I mean, maybe if you're reading the uh, 16th century New King, you know, 16th century King James, maybe you could update that. Read something that is in a language you still speak, you know. But uh, either way, either way, ask the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible tells us that the wisest people in the world can't understand this. The wisest people on the planet can't understand the gospel without the Holy Spirit. He says he picked the uneducated. He picked the weak. He picked the not so noble. He picked these people to confound the wise. Now there are people, all, there's all stripes in the body of Christ. There's people with numerous doctorates and there's people they just say, thank God I can read the stop sign. But all of us are able to hear from the Holy Spirit and be taught and shake nations and shake mountains. And uh, there's not a thing standing in the way of that. So be a student of the Word. You, if you were a terrible student in school, you can still be a good student of the Word. Let God teach you. Let Him open your eyes. Ephesians chapter 2 is wonderful. Ephesians 1 is wonderful. But, you know, we don't have all the time in the world. So we're going to start in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 starts with this booming statement that you were dead in your trespasses. Some of you were really aware of that. Some of you knew that. That nobody had to convince you you were dead. Some of you had to be woken up to that fact. Somebody you had to, some, some of you had to have somebody like get in your face and say, listen, you're not as hot as you think you are. You're not, you, you know, you need help. But we all came to the point where we realized we were dead and he made us alive. 
So it starts with talking about you being dead in your trespasses, but God, through Christ, made you alive in Christ Jesus and raised you up with him and seated you in heavenly places with Jesus. You see, here's the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus came down into your mud and said, for the rest of eternity, you and me are going to be in the mud together. The gospel is that Jesus came into your mud and lifted you out of the mud and said, sit with me. That's the gospel. Now, I know that there are times where you say, I sure don't feel like I'm out of the mud. I sure don't feel like I'm seated in heavenly places. Well, that's because we walk by faith and not by sight. You've got to know who you are. And then the Bible tells us, even later in this book here, it says, this is who you are. Now walk like that. Now act like it. Now live like it. If you grew up all your life thinking you were a dog, you would crawl around. You'd eat food from the bowl. You'd go to the bathroom wherever you felt like it. If you thought you were a dog, you'd act like a dog until somebody convinced you you're not a dog, you're a human being. And when you knew who you are, you act different. And when we know who we are in Jesus, it's not just a change of behavior. It's not just a change of our thought pattern. It's you actually were transformed. And I've said this before, but dead people can't pretend that they're alive. Right? I mean, you can help it. I mean, you shouldn't, but you could do a puppet show or something. It would be a terrible thing. Terrible, terrible thing. You could make a dead body move around. Don't do this. Please don't do this. I have to put a bunch of disclaimers, just tons of disclaimers on this. You could make a dead person kind of move around, but there's no way you'd fool really anybody. Dead people can't pretend they're alive, can they? Dead people can't walk like they're alive. Dead people are dead. Did you know living people can act like they're dead? Living people can pray, play dead. And this is the thing. Before you knew Jesus, you could not live holy. You could not live righteously you, because you weren't righteous. You can't live righteous if you're not righteous. See, a lot of people are trying to live a certain way so that they can be righteous. But that's impossible. It's impossible. The Bible says all of that is like filthy rags. It doesn't, doesn't count for anything. Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, he said, uh, you know, the problem with my brothers is not that they're, you know, they're terrible sinners. The problem with them is that trying to establish their own righteousness, they neglect the righteousness which is from God. So they die. And here's what he's saying to you. You were dead, but now you're alive. You're alive. Then he goes on to say this in verse uh, Boy, we'll start in verse 8. I wish we could start earlier. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we'd walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. In other words, the Jews call you the uncircumcision because they're circumcised, you're not. They've got a covenant, you don't. But he's saying that's who you used to be. He says, you guys remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh, that's when he put his body on the cross. He didn't just put your sin on it. He put your sin on himself. But, but there was that sin, that, those decrees against you, everything that said you were guilty. All those guilty verdicts, all the evidence. He didn't, he didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't cover up and say, well, we're just going to pretend this didn't happen. No, he paid for it. That's what you've got to understand. A lot of people figure in the Old Testament, God's mean. In the New Testament, God's nice. And he just suddenly said, you know what? <laughs> Forget it, guys. I'm just going to, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with you punks. I'm just going to live my life. You live yours. We're not going to talk about it anymore. That's not what happened. God didn't just suddenly get real chill and say, eh, sin's not a big deal anymore. He's holy. You can't, sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Something would have to give. Either he would have to stop being holy or you'd have to stop existing. And so you can't have the two meet. So here's what he did. He did not say, I don't care anymore. He paid for that penalty. He paid for that sin. He went to the electric chair for you so that your punishment would be paid in full. And that's good news. And here's what it says. It says, we had no hope and we were without God in the world. But those of us who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now I want you to think about that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. The cross was Jesus paying the penalty so we could all be brought back to God like he created us to be. He says we were far off, but now we've been brought near. Think about how that changes your life. Think about how that changes your life when there's people in your life that you were far off from, but now you're near to. How much bigger is it when you are far off from God himself? You gotta realize, God doesn't just have joy. He's the source of joy. God doesn't just have love. He is love. God doesn't just supply life. He is life. Everything that exists has its life because of him. So to be separated from God is a terrible thing. To be separated from God. And that separation started with the first sin on the planet. And everything that's broken with our world, everything that's messed up, everything that's twisted, is twisted because we were separated from God. Now think about it. What happens when we're brought near to God? Things are made right. You still live in a world that's messed up by sin. So stuff still happens. But you're not far from God anymore. You're not distant from God. You're not a stranger. You are not without hope anymore. But I want you to see this because, you know, like I said earlier, when we sing a song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, what a beautiful song. When you hear that, sometime listen to those words. That song was written by Charles Wesley. Charles and John Wesley were, were preachers who stirred revival throughout all of England and North America. In fact, they, they along with George Whitfield, probably were the sparks that started the Great Awakening. And when Charles wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he didn't say, we need Christmas songs. We need some stuff to sing around the fire when it's cold outside. No, Charles wrote a hymn of worship to God. You think about how 
beautiful, how amazing that song, hark. Now you go, well, no, I don't say hark. What does that mean? It means pay attention. Hey. Now, hey, the herald angels sing doesn't sound as good. <laughs> or listen, the herald angels sing. Hark really means to listen, to, to pay attention. Hark. The herald, now, herald, I know somebody named Harold. Herald. Herald. <laughs> means that these are angels that are announcing something. They're bringing news. Maybe you go, oh, that's why the newspaper is called the Herald. Heralding (laughs) is to bring news. So listen up. There are angels bringing news to us. And here's what they're saying. So hark the Herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. You, I mean, when you really listen to those words, you can't hear it the same way again. That is the most powerful announcement that's ever been announced on the planet that there is a Savior that's come and God and sinners are being reconciled again through Jesus Christ. So that's what the angels are singing. Now that song's being played in Safeway. Can you imagine that? Oh Lord, open the ears of those that hear it. Oh, Lord, open their ears that they might hear it and stick in their heart. But how can we expect them to hear it if we don't even hear it? God and sinners reconciled. And I think about that. That that didn't happen when Jesus was born. It was announced when he was born. But it happened through the cross and the resurrection. That's when it happened. Because what had to happen for you to be reconciled with God is somebody had to die. Jesus did. He died a painful torturous, long and drawn out death, but he did it for you. And I think about that cross. It's got a beam that goes up and it's got a beam that goes across. A vertical beam and a horizontal beam. And I know that the cross was not designed by God. It was designed by Romans, probably even before the Romans, but the Romans really took that hit and made it a classic. The cross was not beautiful to those people. We wear it around our necks, but at the time. You know, if you were going to be executed and you were an honorable person, they said, listen, we like you, but uh, you got to die. Or even if you were a bad guy, and let's just get it over with, the execution would be by the sword. But the cross was reserved for those they wanted to make an example of. The cross was not only long and torturous, but it was done in public. See, it was done for those traitors. It was done for the worst criminals so that people would go by and look at you and say, I'll never do what he did. I'll never do what he did because look at how he's suffering in the presence. He's dying in front of everybody. Slowly, over a period of days usually. That's why in the book of Isaiah it says, they will look upon him who they pierced. And it says later in Isaiah, it says, when we looked at him, we didn't even recognize him. There was no beauty There was nothing for us to grab onto and we looked at him and we thought he's stricken by God. He must have done something against God. But then it's been made known to us that he did that for us. He was bruised for our transgressions. He did that for us. So the cross, I know, is not designed by God, but there is something wonderful about it and that's that's, because that's where our Savior died. And it has that beam that goes up and it's got the beam that goes across. And I don't want to make too much of it, but the way I like to think of that and the way many people have thought of it for centuries is 
that the cross did something. It reconciled us to God. That's that beam that goes up. But it reconciled us with one another. See, the same thing that separated you from God separated you from your brothers and sisters, and that is sin. Watch what it says. Not only did God reconcile us to himself, but it says he brought two groups together. Jews and Gentiles alike, he brought them together in his body. And he made them one. He said, it says in verse 15, that he might himself make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So the peace that he's talking about, first is peace with God, but then it's also peace with one another. That's good news. You know, when we talk about peace on earth, we talk about this peace on earth. It's not like the world thinks. Remember, Jesus said, I'm leaving you peace, but it's not peace as the world gives. You see, when people, uh, you know, for instance, have you ever heard the, the carol or the, the old Christmas song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day? If you know the story behind that, that's an old, it's an old poem that a very famous poet in the United States wrote. It's very cynical through most of it. He's looking around going, I heard the bells of Christmas Day. He's remembering that the angel said peace on earth, and he says there is no peace on earth. Because he lived through the Civil War. He had family that died. His brother, I believe, died in the war. And he's looking around going, there is no peace on earth, I said. And then he remembers that there will be a day when wrong is right, when, when all things are made new. And it begins, he begins to say, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. There's a great building in the song because all of a sudden he realizes, I said there's no peace, but I recognize that the greatest peace that ever could be accomplished has already been paid for, and that's peace between God and mankind, and all things will be made right through him. And there is this injustice, this war, all of this will come to an end, but he will reign forever and ever. His kingdom will endure. So as that song plays out, you see him come to the realization that the peace that the world's talking about is just stop fighting for a while. But the peace that God's talking about is that you would be brought back to him. And when you're brought back to him, all things are made new. But we're not just brought back to him. He says we're brought back to each other. He makes the two into one. It's a wonderful thing to have the cross in your mind when you go to prayer. Because it, it changes the way you pray, doesn't it? See, if you don't believe your sins are pray, paid for, if you don't believe you've been made clean by the blood of Jesus, when you pray, you pray like a very guilty, very sinful, dirty person. But when you believe that his blood is great enough for you, and his forgiveness encompasses even all that you've done, and you're not the most special person in the world, even though you think it is. You might think, I am the most special person in the world. I'm the only one bad enough that God couldn't forgive. When you recognize the greatness of the cross and the greatness of his blood, you recognize there's nobody that's that bad, that's too bad for the blood of Jesus. How great is the cross of Jesus Christ? So it changes the way you relate to God. What does the Bible say? It says, because of Jesus, he's made a new and living way through his own blood, through his own flesh, that we might go to God and draw near to God and find help and grace and help, grace and mercy to help in a time of need. This is what he's promised us. He says, let's, let's go boldly into the throne of God. Let's go boldly into the throne of grace. This is what he says. 
Now, I, I wonder if we apply the cross with the same vigor to each other as we do when we're talking to God. Man, thank you for the cross. Oh, thank you, I'm forgiven. Yet the cross is not just to reconcile you with God, but to reconcile all of us. And I want to ask you a question that I really want you not to take lightly, but how prevalent, how big is the cross in your relationships? Because the cross has got to be big in your relationship with God, but is it big in your relationship with one another? I think back to the Lord's Prayer. Pretty much everybody here knows the Lord's Prayer, right? You know, when I went to school, we recited the Lord's Prayer every morning in public school. I think they still do in some schools. That's cool. In public school, we recited the Lord's Prayer, and then in sixth grade, we learned it in French. So, <laughs> I'm from Alberta, and uh, we don't have a lot of opportunities to practice our French, so it slowly goes away. But when you meet somebody from the South, or you meet somebody from another country who doesn't speak French and doesn't know French, and you want to impress them with some fastly laid out French, I just say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> they say, what'd you say? I'll go, I'll tell you someday. I'll tell you later. Because I memorized it. Because we said it every day. But maybe you've said it so many times you forgot what it says. Well, there's a line in there, and I think most of us, if you learned it in school, you learned it in the King James. And it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that's a good translation. One, one of the best translations, if you really want to dig into the Greek, is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's big. He ties it, and no matter what translation you read it in, he's tying your relationship with God, he's tying that together with your relationship with people. And he says, if I'm going to ask God for forgiveness, I've got to be ready to forgive somebody else. I can't expect him to forgive my debts if I'm still holding other people's debts. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. When he took over your accounts payable, he, or he, yeah, your account's payable, and he said, look, you owe billions of dollars. Imagine this. Some of you are business people today. Imagine if you owned, if you owed billions of dollars, but you still had a couple people that owed you, you know, about 500 bucks. Billions of dollars, 500 bucks. If somebody came to you and said, I will take care of your debt. I'll pay it all. The billions that you owe, I'll pay it all but you also have to give me the 500 that somebody owes you. You can't, you can't go after them anymore. I'm taking on their debt too. You wouldn't say to them, nope, no deal. No deal. I love collecting debts. You don't understand. I know I owe you billions of dollars, but I love going to them and say, you owe me 500. That's the one thing I got on them. I mean, every time we go bowling, I go, ha, you might have won, but you owe me 500 bucks, so you know. No, you'd, you'd be a fool to turn them down. You're going to pay my billions of dollars in debt? Sure. I'll give you, I'll give you these, these, these receipts. You can, you can take the 500 that's owed me. That's fine. That's what Jesus did. He took the debt that you owed, which was insurmountable. It was way more than you could ever do. And then he took on the debts that were owed you, not just at the time, but for all eternity. He said, if anybody owes you something, they now owe me, all right? I'll deal with it. And you don't have a right to deal with it anymore. You gave that part up. That was part of the deal. That's part of the bargain. And it's a good deal. You got a good deal out of this. See, the thing is, 
when I go to God, the only way I can pray with any sort of confidence is to know that he paid for my sin. Because if I owe him a lot, if, I owe, if, I, if I'm a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner, how can I go to God and ask for anything? Because even the Pharisees said, surely God doesn't answer the prayer of sinners. Even though God did when the sinner said, forgive me, have mercy on me. But how can I go to God and ask for anything until I know that Jesus has paid my debt? So it changes our relationships when we're still holding debts against one another. If you're going to get real comfortable with the vertical beam of the cross, you need to be okay with the horizontal beam. Is the cross prevalent? Because if, if somebody comes to me and I don't treat them as if they are absolutely worthy of my love, as if they are absolutely worthy of my time, as if they have never wronged me, I am denying the power of the cross in that relationship. And if I deny the power of the cross in that relationship, not only does that hurt my relationship with them, and it, and it blocks it blocks the ability to let God move in that situation, but it also affects my relationship with God. Remember when Jesus said, if you want to go to prayer, in Mark, in Mark 11, he says this. He says, guys, if, I mean, if you tell a mountain to get up and be thrown into the sea, and you believe it in your heart, and you trust that God's able to do that, and you don't doubt, he says, it will happen just like you said. But you know, we, we stop there and we go, praise God, man, that motivates me. Whatever I've asked in faith, believing that I've already received it, I'll have it. Man, that pumps you up. But he doesn't stop there. He says that if you, stand, if, you, if you need to forgive anybody, forgive them. If you, if you want to pray, you need to forgive. How many times does he say, if you don't forgive, how do you expect God to forgive you? That's a big deal. See, I... Pardon me, I'm going to talk to you while I tie my shoe because I, some of you are so OCD, she'll never hear another word I say unless I do this. So we're going to act like it's an object lesson. Think about these shoelaces like you think about your relationships. <laughs> okay, we're not going to do that. But think about this. If I'm forgiving in, we're all good because we're Christians, and most of us have been Christian long enough, we're good at forgiving in word. We're good at saying, you know what, I forgive you. And yet, we're going to say, and we will use Christian terms. We'll use Christian terms and we'll say, yeah, I forgave them, but you still got to use wisdom around them. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll warn other people about them. We'll say, just use wisdom about, around that person. Or we'll say, just want you to know something so you can pray. I want you to know something so you can pray. <laughs> Thank God for prayer chains. But like eight out of ten prayer chains in North America have turned into gossip chains. It's dangerous. Well, here's the thing. I forgive you. And I used to say, I used to say when I was a kid, because I knew I was raised right. I knew we, we love each other, the love of the Lord. That means if I don't feel like loving you, I still love you because God is love. He's in me. I love you with the love of the Lord. But like, if I ever said I love you with the love of the Lord, that was my way of saying, I just don't like you. Get out of my face, but I, I have to love you. <laughs> my sister and I would be fighting. Oh, and she would, you know, I was always convinced that she was, uh, you know, she was just a 
just an evil genius at times. I, this is what I thought. I know better now. She's a wonderful sister, best sister you could have ever asked for. But I used to think she is just plotting to get me in trouble at every, at every step of the way. And mom and dad are blind to it, and they don't see it for, what I, for how I see it. They don't know how things go down. If I had had a GoPro camera back then, I would have used it. You know, it probably would have incriminated me, but at the time, I thought I was right. Mom and dad, you know, we get in trouble, and we get, we get our licks in, and then she'd say, you know, mom or dad would say, all right, uh, makeup, all right, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay. And then it would say, now, tell each other you love each other. It would say, I love you with the love of the Lord. <laughs> now, that should be a good thing, but it kind of turned into a backhand of the face. I love you with the love of the Lord. Ooh. Which kind of was your way of saying, I love you out of obligation. I love you because I have to. I found out that when you love somebody with the love of the Lord, you really start to really love them. And I used to, you used to always say, well, you don't have to like them, but you got to love them. When you love somebody, you start to like them. Right? You really love them. Why, what are the reasons you don't like them? There's a whole bunch of things wrong with them. A whole bunch of things messed up with them. There's a whole bunch of things that are poking you in the wrong place. But when you, the Bible says, love each other fervently from the heart, for love covers a multitude of sins. And what happens is that love, it begins to be bigger than the things that you find wrong with them. It begins to be bigger than the things they've done against you. Forgiving, see, our version of forgiveness has to match his version of forgiveness. Because if it doesn't, it has no power. You see, if what? let's just imagine for a moment, if Jesus forgave people like we mostly forgive people. If he forgave you with like, well, I'm not going to punish you for it right now, but I'm going to put it on the shelf. I'm going to hold it against you for a very long time. Or if he forgave you and said, you know what? You don't owe me anything, but I'm watching you. I don't really like you either, and I'm warning everybody about you. Quite frankly, Tony, I'm just saying this. I love you with the love of the Lord, but uh, what if Jesus said to you, you know, Tony, I mean, you're my kid. Can't do anything about that now. But uh, you're on probation for like the rest of your life. Would that kind of forgiveness have set you free? His forgiveness. Let's keep reading because I want you to see some themes here. And we're going to skip a little bit just for time's sake. But he goes ahead and says, he's, he is our peace. That's big. He's our peace. We find our peace. We don't have to find peace outside of him. He is our peace. So it says, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. The enmity is the thing that makes you enemies. Enmity is what makes you and me enemies. And he put that on his body on the cross. It says, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that law not only separated the two of them, but it also pointed out their sin. He put that on himself. And it says, it, so that in himself he might make the two, the one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. So you see what he's doing? He's first bringing, he's bringing us together and he's bringing us to God. 
by having to put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away. Now this first and foremost is peace with God, isn't it? But listen, in the context, he's talking about two groups who didn't get along, who had nothing in common. He's put them two together. So, so in this context, peace is not just peace with God, it's peace with one another. It says, peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now I'm going to skip through chapter 3 a little bit because chapter 3 is brilliant, it's wonderful. But just for the, for the sake of time, look to Ephesians 4. It says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, I'm reasoning with you here. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Recognize how great that calling is and walk in a manner that's worthy of it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Hang on. When he's talking about this, I thought he was going to talk about how we treat God and how we honor God. But he says, in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God called you with and paid for with his cross and cemented and made a reality with the resurrection, in order to walk in a manner that honors the cross, in order to walk in a manner that honors the resurrection, in order to walk in a manner that honors his great sacrifice, show tolerance for one another in love with all humility and gentleness and with patience. And verse 3, being diligent, that means you got to work at it, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he goes in and he talks about the gifts. But for a moment there, I want you to skip down to verse 16. He says from, at verse 15, sorry. But speaking the truth in love, we are that to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a powerful thought. I know there's a lot in there, but it's powerful to realize that he just told you, you got stuck in the same body with a bunch of people, and the only way that we grow is not, I mean, you might have thought, hey, I want to grow in my faith, so I'm going to lock myself up for five years and just get into the Word and listen to teaching tapes. You'll grow a little, but you won't grow enough. And at some point, your growth will be stilted. A lot of people fell into this trap in like the 80s and early 90s because there was such good teaching out there. And it was easier to get. So you know what they do? They say, you know what? I need to prepare. I need to grow. I need to get built up. So you know, they'd lock themselves up with a Bible and a cassette player and think that that would cause them to grow. And it will. The word will cause you to grow. But look what it says here. 
we are fitted together. What's causing us to grow is that when every joint is, every part is working, we, two parts come together, that's a joint. And what those joints are supplying, that's what's making the body grow. You can't grow without being connected to people. You read all this word, it gets you built up, but you can't use the word unless you're around people. So he says, hey, the whole body is being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies. And we, we elevate certain parts and we go, this part, this person is a great person, mighty man or woman of God. We elevate them. But what's really causing the body to be strong and to grow is not the parts, but the parts coming together in joints. That's what's causing us to grow. Now look, it says, so this I say in verse 17, and I affirm together with the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. So he's saying, it's not just me talking. This is God talking to you. You walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and you've been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Don't you realize that every time you say, well, I can't do that, I can't be that way, I can't, I just can't live like that, that you're denying the power of Jesus in your life. Here's what he's saying. You used to be that way. That's not who you are. That's your former manner of life. Now put on the new self. If I have the option to put it on, that means somebody already paid the price for it. That means it's already been given to me. All I got to do is put it on. It says, put on your new self. Do you know what the new self looks like? It says here, it looks like God. And it's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see what he's saying? You can't, you can't just live life disregarding and mistreating and and deceiving your brothers and sisters. He says, we're members of one another. Is it, it, I mean, I told you this before, but I used to work in a Christian bookstore and it was a wonderful experience. You know what I noticed? There was a trend at a certain period of time. There was a trend for people to put out books that said things like, I love Jesus, I hate the church. I love Jesus, I don't like Christians. You know how they said that so they could be cool. And anytime somebody criticized one of those loud mouths that gets on CNN, we could all go, I don't really like him either. I love Jesus. I hate that guy. Or anytime somebody said, you know, when I went to church, people were mean and they were hypocritical. We could go, I I agree with you. I hate him too. But I love Jesus. You know, that was our out. That was our cool card. We could say that and be safe. But how can you say you love Jesus if you hate his body? How how can that be true? I know there are people that are messed up, right? Like, you know, if we wanted a perfect church, we'd have to kick you out, right? 
That's just the reality. We got people in the church. That's the problem. But that's also the solution. Jesus has called us to his body. And then he says, you're members of one another. You can't get out of that. I know sometimes we embarrass one another. (laughs) You wish. Why does the news always go to that guy? Because the news wants hits. They want people watching. They want to put it on YouTube and have everybody laugh. That's why they put that idiot on there. I wish he wasn't on there either. The guy that shows up with a loud bullhorn and says a bunch of stupid stuff and disregards the name of Jesus. Yeah, I don't like that guy either. But if he's my brother, you've got to accept him too. We've got to realize that he's called us together. And, and, and on a broad sense, we're talking big picture. That's, that's easy enough. But you know where it really gets down to the nitty-gritty? It gets down to the nitty-gritty when we hurt one another. And you figure, they hurt me and I'm owed something for it. So you collect your debts. Now maybe you're a nice Christian and you're never going to ask them for that debt, but you're holding it anyways. Anybody owe you money and you don't bring it up? Right? There's people, everybody's got somebody that owes them a little bit of money. You just go, ah, I won't bring it up. Which is fine if you just let it go. I'm not talking about money, but right now we're talking about things that people do. Subconsciously, you hold that. They owe me something. They've hurt me. There's a debt there. Maybe you are playing Christian well enough that you'll never bring it up, but it's just as wrong to keep holding it and not say anything about it. In fact, sometimes it's worse. Do you notice he keeps saying, speak truth to one another? Now, I don't want you to be that person that's always going up to everybody about every little thing they did wrong and telling them because you think you need to speak truth to them. There's a lot of stuff you just should let go, right? You just let it go. But if somebody's continually hurting, can I tell you, I don't remember, and I'm being honest here, I don't remember the last time I maliciously wanted to hurt somebody. It's been a long time. Yet I realize that I have hurt people and I didn't even know it. Maybe it was the phone call you didn't return. Maybe the, Facebook, for goodness sakes. I'm never on Facebook. But people will like, people act like you killed their puppy if you don't respond in the first <laughs> week. Right? And, uh, you know, because maybe that's something that means a lot to you and that's your way of communication. And I want to tell you right now, if that's been me, I am sorry. And in fact, if that's hurt you, you need to tell me. You need to say, I left the message on your machine. You never got back to me. And I will say, I won't say, get over it. I will repent to you. I will apologize because I don't want there to be anything between us. And I get that. How big is the cross in our relationships? Now listen. One of the worst things about coming to a pastor for counseling is he almost never tells you what you want to hear, right? Because if, if, if he told you, I mean, if, if you already knew the answer, you wouldn't be coming to somebody else, right? Most of the time, you think you know your answer and you want your spouse to hear the answer. Because I know the answer, you need to hear this from somebody else. That's why you bring them. That's why most people show up in that office. Not everybody. Not you, whoever you are. Most people want to hear it back from you. I just want confirmation I'm doing the right thing. But here's the deal. When you counsel a couple... You have two different conversations. Most of the time, you tell them each what they need to change. 
So maybe the husband is like 90% in the wrong. When I talk to the wife, I'm going to say, hey, there's 10% you need to work with here. There's 10% you need to change. Because it does me no good to talk to the wife about all the things the husband's doing wrong. I need to talk to the husband about that. When I talk to the wife, let's, sit, let's talk about what you need to change. Then i got to get to the husband. Man, 90%. It's not always 90-10. In fact, most of the time it's close to 50-50. But I'm not going to just get, gang up with you on your spouse and go, ha, ha, what a loser. You're right. <laughs> now, even if they're wrong, we're going to say, okay, but what can you do? Because that's what's going to cause you to grow. That's what's going to help you. It doesn't help you for us to just bash that person. So here's, you always have two different conversations. So I'm going to talk to you like I'm talking to two different people. The first person I'm going to talk to is the person that's owed something. You've had somebody hurt you. You've had somebody treat you bad. You've had somebody neglect you. Here's what I want to give you. Here's the advice I want to give you. Let the cross be present. Let the cross be at the forefront. And if Jesus paid the price for that person to be right with God, he paid the price for them to be right with you. And don't expect them to pay something that Jesus already paid. Because as long as you do, you are denying the cross. You're saying, oh, you may be paid up with God, but you're not paid up with me. And that, my friends, is a dangerous place to be in. Because Jesus paid your debt and he took all the people that owed you as well. So what does the Bible say in Romans? It says, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the judgment of God. Let God be the judge. Let God work it out. If he needs to spank somebody, let him spank somebody. You don't go spanking somebody else's kid. Good advice for everybody, right? Maybe spanking's not a thing anymore in 2014, but it's, it is in some houses, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's a bad idea to grab somebody's kid in the mall and say, you're not doing it, so I'll do it. You go to jail for that. Right? I believe there's still some value to it if it's done in love, not done in anger, not done in abuse or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about today. You don't spank other people's kids. You don't discipline other people's kids to a point. If they let you, they let you. But we're not authorized to collect payment from somebody for something Jesus has already paid. I'm not talking about money here. I am talking about when people have done something to wrong you. So here's what I say to you. Let the cross, if the cross paid them up with Jesus, it pays them up with you. Now, if you're the one that owes somebody, if you're the one that's hurt somebody, you are forgiven. Praise the Lord. Good news, right? You're forgiven. And yet, in the scripture, there's this pesky theme that keeps popping up. Like when Lazarus has Jesus invite him over like Jesus invited himself over to Lazarus' house. Lazarus, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus, a, a bad sinner, a tax collector, which in that day and age meant you were a traitor, you were stealing from your own people. This is who he was. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Jesus accepted him. Jesus ate food with him, which in that culture meant a lot. If you ate with somebody, you accepted them. And the Pharisees were livid because you should never accept people like that. Jesus sat down with Zacchaeus. But what happened when Jesus sat down with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, overwhelmed by the forgiveness and the love of Jesus, stands up and says, whatever I've stolen, I will pay back four times as much. Do you see what the forgiveness inspired him to do? To do his best to make it right. If you notice in 2 Corinthians 7, don't turn there, but if you'll notice, there's a, 
there's a whole church that got in trouble in 1 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, you were sad, and I'm glad you were sad about it because you needed to, to repent. And once you repent, he says, that repentance brings deliverance, and that deliverance has no regret attached to it. Once you are forgiven, get rid of the regret and realize you're free in Jesus. But then he says, he's bragging on them a little, and he says, oh, what zeal, what avenging, what avenging of wrong." In everything, you proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. What he says to them is, when you realized you were in the wrong, you turned around and zealously made it right. So I had that first conversation with the people that are owed something. Get over it, let it go. But now if you have hurt somebody, if you've wronged somebody, realize you're forgiven. But it's a good idea to ask the Lord, how, how can I make this right? Even if they've forgiven you and they don't expect anything from you. If you stole something from somebody, pay it back. If, you, if you've done something, go and make it right. Because this is what, this is a response. I mean, it's not you trying to pay for your sin. It's you responding to the great forgiveness that he's shown to you. And here's what, let's just finish this as we're closing up here. He says, we're members of one another, verse 26 in chapter 4 says, Be angry, yet don't sin. How? What does that mean? Sometimes you get angry. Don't let the anger turn to sin. Anger turns to sin not only when you act on it, but when you give it a place in your home, when you give it a place in your heart. It says, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I remember what, before I got married to Tia, I asked some couples that had been married for a long time, what, what advice would you give a young guy like me? And like 75% of them, they were Christians, like 75% of them said, don't go to bed angry. And it, comes from, it comes from this, but it's not just for married couples, it's for all of us. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not be angry more than a day. Deal with it. How are you going to deal with it? Bring it to God. Let God handle it. He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. The literal Greek implies a foothold, a place for him to stick his foot. Do you realize Satan has no authority in your life? That when you are submitted to God, he has got no way into your life. But when you take offense, when you let yourself stay angry at somebody, when you let yourself stay ticked off, when you let yourself stay in unforgiveness, you give Satan a place to stick his foot. And that is a dumb move. Don't do it. You can't afford it. Don't give the devil an opportunity. It says in the next verse, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So don't say anything unless it's going to build somebody up. Now, building somebody up is not always just telling them, you're great, I love you, I, just keep doing whatever you're doing. Listen, if your friend's going to go perform at American Idol and they're a terrible singer, stop telling them they're good. You know, you're not doing them any favor. People are going to laugh at them on national television, and they're going to say, it's your fault. Simon says, that was terrible. It's the worst I've ever heard. And they go, my friend said I was good. That's your fault. That's on you. 
Don't lie to people, but don't say anything unless it's going to build them up in some way. It's going to minister grace. You can't, can I just say this? You can't discipline somebody. You can't rebuke somebody. You can't correct somebody if you don't love them. It's impossible. Quit trying. What's going to happen is trees need to be pruned. And you go with pruning shears and you prune the stuff that's not bearing fruit, that tree will be healthier. When you don't love somebody, you're going at it with an ax and you're just hacking away and you're going to leave somebody wounded and damaged, probably yourself too. When it says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when I always read this verse, I always pictured somebody doing something stupid in a service. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, you know? Somebody like during the middle of praise and worship like saying, everybody look at me or, you know, somebody, you know, but as you read it in context, apparently grieving the Holy Spirit might have something to do with the way you're treating everybody else. Uh-oh. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Thank God for the seal. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Oh, we don't give enough time to that, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is a dangerous state of being, because a tender-hearted person is very vulnerable. What we often do is we, we live life, and we survive encounters with people, but the way we learn to live is by hardening our heart so that we're not hurt the same way a second time. You have to entrust God with your heart. He says, be tenderhearted. It takes choice to be tenderhearted. Because every time, Tony's never wronged me. That's why I use him as an example. Because then you can't read too much into it. What did Tony do this time? <laughs> Tony's never done a thing in my life unless he did it in secret. No, he didn't. Tony's never done a thing in his life to hurt me. He's a good guy. But now if Tony hurt me, and he hurt me over and over again, I'd say, listen, I'm going to still love Tony, but I've learned some lessons. And it's going to be harder for Tony. I'm going to put up more walls and more walls and more walls, and pretty soon I'm not going to give Tony much time. I'll smile at him. I'll shake his hand at church. But it won't go past that. Because I've hardened my heart towards Tony to protect myself. What that says is, I'm in charge of protecting my heart. You're not. You know who's in charge of protecting your heart? The Bible calls him the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Trust Jesus with your heart. He says, keep loving them. You go, I can't keep loving them. He says, keep loving them. Trust me with your heart. I will heal. He is the healer of broken hearts. What you do when you try to protect yourself is you take off the armor of God, which can repel every dart of the enemy. It can stand against every attack of the devil in the evil day. That armor of God is invincible. You take off the armor of God and you put on your own homemade cardboard armor. That's what you're doing. You're saying, I only trust stuff I make. All right, I'm putting my cardboard on her. Cardboard armor on. I'll look after myself. I made it with my own two hands. You will die. Trust God. You say, every time I trust God, it hurts. Yeah, life hurts. Get over it. He's the healer. He's the healer. Trust him with your heart. And you go, hey, I don't need to protect myself. I need to let him work through me. 
oh, that's a dangerous thought. And some of you are even backpedaling. You're smiling, you're nodding, but inside you're backpedaling. Nope, 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 nope. I get that. <laughs> Use wisdom, right? Use wisdom is a great phrase. 75% of the time, most people use it. It's, it's an excuse for, be afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. You're, you're, you're just too brave. Stop being so brave. Be, be a little cowardly. Uh, wisdom's a good thing. Wisdom comes from God. Be tender-hearted. Do you ever wonder why the Scripture has to tell you to be tender-hearted? Why it's not automatic. It is automatic when you got saved. I remember talking to Chance. Where'd Chance go? Chance left us. He's downstairs. Oh, he's got a good excuse. Hall pass. He's ministering to little children. Good, good job. But Chance, the bass player. You ever notice Chance? He's a big guy, isn't he? Big guy. In fact, <laughs> we have a problem. When he works out, his notes go out of tune. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When he works out, his notes got to him because he's pressing too hard. He's bending the string on the bass. <laughs> this is not a problem I have to deal with. <laughs> I've never had to tell somebody. I'm just too strong to play guitar. Not been an issue. <laughs> I did 20 minutes of cardio. And no, this is a thing. But you can imagine big old chances, big old arms. When he got saved, and he'll tell you this. I remember talking to him about it. He, he said, when I first got born again, I came into the church, I want to hug everybody. Just hug everybody. That tender hearted, that came from, from Jesus. That came from being born again, created a new heart in you. He has to tell you to be tender hearted here. Why? Because throughout life, you start to harden it to protect yourself. Be tender hearted. Can you trust the cross? Can you trust Jesus? I'm not talking about the cross as a metaphor. I'm not talking about the cross as inspiration. I'm talking about the cross as in the power of God. Can you trust the power of God to make what's wrong right? Can you trust the power of God to heal things that need to get healed? Because here's the thing. If you do it your own way, you will put band-aids on every problem and we won't bleed out right away. But if you trust God, he will heal the lame. He will raise the dead. He will cause the blind to see. You doing it your way is giving the blind guy a cane. Jesus doing it his way is making the blind guy see again. So here's what it's like in our relationships. We can handle it, but all we're doing is putting band-aids on it. But if we let God into the mix, how do you let God into the mix? You get out of the mix. Get your emotions out. Get your feelings out. I know they're hurt. Well, give them to God. Who's the healer? He's the healer. Come on. If somebody broke your arm in a fight, do you go to them to fix it? Give me a thousand sorries, my arm will feel better. It doesn't work. You go to somebody who can fix your arm. A bully can't fix your arm. See, we're going to people to fix things that they broke, but they broke it, but they can't fix it. You got to go to God. He's the only one that can fix it. He's the only one that can heal it. And you say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. And you better mean it when you say it. Because if you're giving it to him, you can't take it back later. It's like him healing your arm, but you want to keep the cast so you get all the sympathy from people. <laughs> you healed my arm, but now nobody's signing my arm anymore. That's worth it. Be tender hearted. 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the phrase that we want to lay our, stake our tent on, and, and, and this will be the last thing we talk about. But let this be the thing that rings in your ears. Forgive one another just as. Just as means you, it's not deviating. It's exactly the same way as God forgave you. What does it say exactly? Let's dig into this. Just as God in Christ. That's important. Because it means that God didn't just let it go. God, through Christ, paid for it. He paid it. So can we, we can forgive one another, we forgive one another in Christ, which means we consider it paid by Jesus. I consider your debt to me paid in full by Jesus Christ himself. Let God make it right. Now, two different conversations. That's what I say to you as the wronged one. As the one that's hurt somebody, know that you're forgiven, know that you're washed clean, but go make it right. Go avenge that wrong. Go pay back what you stole. Let God work that out in you. Isn't it wonderful? The law will make you pay back something. But the grace of God is even greater. You know, your obligation in, in Canadian law is, uh, you know, if you stole something, you got to at least pay it back, right? Zacchaeus, unprompted by anyone else, said, I'll pay back four times what I stole. That's what, that's what Jesus did for him. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The cross has two beams. A beam going straight up to God because He reconciled you to God. And it's got a beam going across in which we are reconciled to one another. I want the cross and the resurrection to be at the forefront, the middle, the top, the bottom, all around every relationship you've got. You have got to let the power of God into those relationships. I think sometimes marriages remain broken. There's a whole bunch of reasons that, that we have problems with marriage. But sometimes and often marriages remain broken because the things you're mad about would never be a big deal on their own. But they have piled up and caked on so many other things that you never truly let go. And maybe you let it slide in, in, in the sense that you didn't punish somebody, you didn't make them pay for it, but you kept it. You kept it. The more you kept it, and the more you kept this and kept that and kept that, pretty soon you're not overly telling them that this is wrong. You're not telling them they've done anything bad, but it's caking on and it's caking on. If that's how Jesus forgave you, you'd be going to hell. Jesus forgave you by doing what? Removing your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Now, I know most of you know this, but if you kept going north, eventually you'd hit the North Pole and you'd be going south. You can't go north forever. Eventually, you go south. But you can go east forever. You can't keep going east and eventually start going west. You'll always be going east. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's how much Jesus, that's how Jesus forgave you. God doesn't say be inspired by his forgiveness. God doesn't say use his forgiveness as an example. He says forgive one another in exactly the same way as he forgave you. And the reason I say this today 
Because I believe there are people in your life that you can't expect right now, but God put them there and fit you two together, and you're supposed to be next to that person in the body of Christ, and God's going to do something through those joints, but right now there's no power in that relationship because you've taken too much control. You've, you've kicked God out because you've held debts. You've held, you've held issues and you've, you've held on to stuff you should have let go a long time ago. And the body can't function that way. The body, that's cancer in the body. You got to let it go. And you don't let it go like the world lets it go. That sin was put on Jesus. It's sin that separated us from God and it's sin that separates us from one another. There are some of you today, like I said, you know, I haven't maliciously or purposely hurt a a person in so long I can't even remember. But I know through neglect, through getting busy, people have been hurt. Maybe you can look at that in your own life, but if if you meditate on that too long, you'll just be depressed. We need to forgive one another. We need to forgive one another. Not in the way that the world says, but in the way that Jesus did. I believe that Lloyd Minster is a ripe harvest field. And what God has planned for this city is so out of our, even our biggest dreams. And sometimes we look forward to 2015 and go, whoa, what a great year it's going to be. It was a great year this year, but it's going to be even better. But if we're so bogged down, by our own stuff that we just never let go, by debts that we kept holding on to that we were never supposed to hold on to, or we let the devil have a foothold in our life. This is a reason some people just can't get free because of this. So before we move on to anything else, we need to let ourselves be truly free. Speak truth to one another in love. Let me tell you, if it's something you can just easily let go, just let it go. If it's something that needs to be dealt with, deal with it. But do it in love. You know, like I said, everybody's got their different views on child rearing. My parents raised me. Every now and then I got a swat on the butt. Now, it wasn't with the cat of nine tails. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't on the back. It, never le- it was just, just all right. It was enough for me to know this is not a good idea. It worked. But I'll tell you, my parents had a rule. You never do that while you're still angry. You know why? Because once you're angry and you're doing it, you're abusing that kid. Never do it while you're angry. That's why they always said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Because it really did. Never go to somebody with a wrong until you're able to freely just let it go. If you're still angry, it's too soon. Don't go to them yet. Get it right with God so that you're willing to just let it go. If it's something that needs to get fixed, go to them and let it be fixed. Jesus said if you've got a wrong with a brother, if you've got something against a brother, go to them. Quit talking to everybody else about it. Go to them. See, if you can't talk to them yet, don't talk to anybody else yet. Go to them. Make it right. If they don't listen to you, you involve somebody else. You involve the pastor. You come against me. Go get an elder. You, you involve somebody else. If that doesn't work, we got other options. But, but, but don't keep gossiping it around. Don't keep holding on to it. Stop having the stupid conversations in the mirror with yourself where you win the argument every time because you're the only one arguing. And just let it go. I want the power of God to be present in our relationships. I want people to be healed. I want people to be whole. I want your prayers to be answered. But Jesus said you can't have your prayers answered if you're not walking in forgiveness. 
The Bible even tells us about marriage. It says, husbands, sometimes the way you're treating your wife is the reason your prayers aren't answered. So if you're not treating her as a co-heir and a sharer of the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. We got to deal with the clutter so that God has free reign in our life. Here's the deal. When you invited Jesus in, he didn't come in as a sidekick that's going through life. You say, I, I invited Jesus into my heart. That doesn't mean that as you go to the grocery store, it's, where are we going today? Yay! Jesus just is your nice sidekick that encourages you. Some people think that Jesus, now Jesus is, is super encouraging, but some people think that Jesus' job in your life is to tell you you can do it when you don't think you can do it. He does that. But Jesus' only purpose in your life is not to just say, you know, oh, you don't think you could go snowboarding? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's not his only purpose in your life. You didn't invite him in your life as a sidekick. You invited him in your life as Lord. Lord means he rules. And when he came in, he rules. And if, you know what? Where he rules, things go well. People are healed. People are set free. You got to let him rule, though. And we let Jesus in, and he rules and thank God when he rules and reigns, where the kingdom of God is, is where the kingdom rules. And where the king rules and they, we have the kingdom of God, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. So when you let the king be king, you will have righteousness in your life, you'll have peace with God and peace with one another, and you will have joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a promise from God. That's the kingdom of God. Let the king be king, you'll have the kingdom. Amen? Stand up with me this morning.